Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, thank you. It is good to be uh, with you all this morning. Uh, it sounds like you're losing a great family, but perhaps Bloomington is gaining it, so we should talk um, after this. I would love to do so. Um, yeah, so again, my name is Eric Whitley. Uh, I actually made the drive here this morning from Bloomington. Uh, it's really good to be with you. I'm about three years in with my ministry there. Before that, I was actually in the local church for about seven and a half years in St. Louis. And uh, we have four kids, and my wife uh, are, are in Bloomington this morning. They couldn't come up with me. It was a little much for them, and I've actually got a sick kid. Um, but uh, this territory is somewhat familiar with me just in the sense of I actually went to school at IU for undergraduate. Uh, and then I also kind of have a connection sort of vicariously through the church back to Westminster because Petros Rukas, if you know that name, was my pastor in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, where I grew up. And so uh, that's a little bit of connection to y'all, if you're familiar with, with uh, that story. But I've been with RUF, uh, which is the campus ministry uh, of the PCA, for, like I said, for about three years. And uh, if you're not familiar with RUF, um, it, it, it is uh, distinct only in the sense that it is kind of the church's extension, the PCA church's extension to the campus, where they put ordained guys on campus. And it really is, it, it, like many of the other campus ministries, a ministry to students and through students. And our catchphrase that we say is it's a place to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. Um, one of the biggest things that I love, I'll just share a quick story before we dive into our passage this morning, is uh, we like to say a lot at RUF that we want to be a place where we can seek to ask honest questions and seek honest answers. And, and that's what I loved even seeing about uh, the Gideon Bible video there a minute ago, too, was the way we want to do that is invite them into uh, encountering God's Word, because we really believe that God's Word can, can, can deal with those hard questions of life. And so I'll just share one story about a, a girl named Zoe who just graduated. I happened to meet with her this last week, and she's on her way to, to moving to Chattanooga here soon. And about four years ago, uh, she knew nothing about God, right? Like belief in God was not even on her radar. And then over time, uh, you know, the Lord led her, especially through relationships with other people in RUF, uh, to really cry out, to have a need for some kind of figure out there. And as she explored that, that became the God of the Bible. And then through time of, of our large group that she started coming to, and then I met with her a lot as well, pouring through the scriptures, she, she began to embrace the way that God has, has sought to reveal himself through his, through his word and ultimately through the person of Christ. And so she's now still like right at this place where she believes and is, I think, about to sink her way in uh, into uh, church and into becoming a Christian. And that's just one story among many of, of what we have the opportunity of doing. And so I just uh, appreciate your prayers as well. I'd love to talk to you more about the ministry of RUF in general, but also specifically at IU. Um, I've got a few things that if you're looking for a pen or something, I can, I can give you a pen uh, or, uh, or bookmark. Um, I'm happy to, to pass some things out to you. I'd love to chat with you, though, afterwards uh, about the ministry of RUF. Um, and you can also find a lot about us online as well, rufindiana.org. Well, this morning we are going to go to a passage 
uh, in the Gospel of Luke. But before we do that, I'm going to share a little bit of background about why we're going here. And that's because uh, during this last spring with RUF at our large group meeting that met on Tuesday nights, we did a series on relationships. And of course, if you're in college, if you're a member of Time in College, maybe you're in college, maybe you're about to go college, college, relationships, as you will know, can be really hard sometimes, right? Whether that's with a roommate, a classmate, your family, right? You're, you've now left your family, you're more on your own. Maybe it's just making and keeping friends or dealing with romance, right? Now, of course, it doesn't change once you graduate, like somehow like friendships aren't hard anymore, uh, relationships. Maybe you even still feel, some of you, even though you're maybe, I don't know, in your 60s or 70s, you feel sometimes still like that college freshman, insecure, trying to find your people, longing to experience deeper connection. Well, one of the things that we talked about in the context of talking about relationships is the way in which we often make ourselves the starting place. And uh, so when we try to fix our relationships, we go to ourselves. And so part of what I challenged our students with was, was realizing that our self-reliance in relationships is actually part of the problem, is one of the biggest problems. And where the scriptures start with it when it comes to our relational connections, the starting place is with God himself. Because after all, God's eternal relationship with himself and the Trinity and his desire to be with us in relationship is forefront in the scriptures. You and I were created in communion with God and with one another. And so then after that, that's kind of when we got into the specifics about different types of relationships. But in between, one of the things that I wanted to do is to set aside a week to talk about a a topic that is common to human existence, and that is the experience of shame. Now why? Why would we go from talking about this is where the scriptures start with relationships, then let's talk about, okay, what that looks like in the context of relationships. Why would we talk about shame? Because not only is it a universal experience for all of us, it affects every single relationship that you and I have. Shame is fundamentally a relational experience. Listen to what author and counselor Dan Allender says about shame. Shame is an interpersonal effect. It requires the presence of another, in fact or in imagination, for its blow to be felt. And interestingly, this topic of shame is actually becoming much more popular in in the broader culture and world to actually talk about. Maybe some of you have heard the name Brene Brown. Anybody heard of that name maybe? Okay. And this is good, right? Lots of good things have come out Uh, after all the Bible Uh, says that all truth is God's truth, and so there's common grace ways that she describes shame that's really helpful for us. Here's one of the things that she says. Shame is that warm feeling that washes over us, making us feel small, flawed, and never good enough. That's an awful feeling, right? The feeling of shame. Well, the Bible actually has a lot to talk about shame, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about shame this morning And especially as it relates to the way that the shackles of shame can often be so strong in our life that inhibit us from actually experiencing freedom in relationships. If you would, turn with me to uh, Luke 18. I don't know if it's going to be up on the screen, but it's 35 through uh, the verse, uh, verse 10 of chapter 19. This is God's word. As he drew near to Jericho, that is Jesus, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. 
They told the blind man, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of God, David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought near to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And then Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was of small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Lord, I do pray that you would bless our time in your word this morning, that would use it to be at work in the lives of these people and in my own heart. We ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that We would not leave here unchanged as a result of being in your word and gathered together as your people through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I am the dorky cello boy. So my relationship with the cello, yes, the instrument, is a complicated one. Here's why. I started playing when I was four years old. I went on to pursue it in college, so I was a music major at Indiana University as a cello performance major. I saw my gift, many saw my gift, I saw it as well. In some ways, over time, I've been very grateful for that, and yet, growing up, there were times that it actually led to a place of shame. Embarrassment at a minimum, but I would even say uh, shame. Because if you didn't know this, by the way, so those of you who are younger, you know, high school, college, there was a day and age when the cello was not cool, okay? So you have One Republic or the Avett Brothers, right? Maybe that's your jam. Cello's cool. Guys, it was not cool, okay? It was not cool. And so I did everything that I could, whether it was like I joined the track team in middle school. And I was okay, but like the really cool thing was I got to wear my track uniform to school on track meet days, right? It's cool. That's cool. Uh, I wanted to join the high school golf team, and so I tried to do that. I wanted to do something athletic that made me cool. And then finally, like, this is less cool, but it's like something outside of music. I was like, okay, I'm going to become the beta club president my senior year of high school. So I did, right? 
And there are even times as an adult that I have sort of felt pigeonholed merely as a cellist or actually in the case of my initial job on staff at church in St. Louis was the choir director. I was the musician. That was half my job as a pastor there. And that was hard for me because there were times it rubbed me the wrong way and I felt this kind of level of shame. That that's actually part of what led me to leave St. Louis and to come to RUF in Bloomington was kind of like, hey, I want to escape this world and this labeling of me sometimes. Well, here's the interesting thing is uh, just because you leave a geographic location doesn't mean that you leave all the shame, right? Um, now, Now, the space has been good, okay? So I will say that. But, you know, I'm still dealing with the shackles sometimes of that reality of shame of saying, you know, I'm the dorky cello boy, right? And that's just one area of shame in my life. One. It follows us. Shame traps us. Shame is a terrible feeling. Listen again to Dan Allender along with his friend Shrimper Longman. Here's what he says. A lingering threat in our everyday encounters and experiences, shame is an acid that strips us of our dignity and dissolves hope. No other emotion better portrays hell. The utter loss of intimacy, wonder, and joy. Its corrosive effect is so strong that it can mold our souls and shape the direction of our lives. Shame is that traumatic exposure of our nakedness and tied with that the belief that we're actually defective, right? Maybe you're familiar with this kind of inner monologue. There's a syntax, right, that goes with the language of shame. I am. For me, right, one of them is I'm the dorky cello boy. Maybe for you it's I'm a loser. I'm fat. I'm ugly. I'm too talkative. I'm too quiet. I'm a dumb jock. I'm a nerdy bookworm. I'm superficial. I'm too analytical. I'm tainted goods. We all have these kind of I am statements that are kind of the inner monologue where we believe ourselves to be unworthy, unloved, and unwanted. You all have them. So what are one or two of yours? Now I'm guessing if you're anything like me, maybe you're already kind of squirmy, like, I don't I don't really want to talk about this. And that's actually the interesting thing about the way shame works. It works, as Brene Brown says, as a petri dish of secrecy, silence, and judgment. Again, Dan Allender, the mere discussion of shame awakens the undealt with shame in others. For that reason, shame is a shameful topic, one that most people would prefer to ignore. <clears throat> now, I don't want to say that lightly, okay? Shame is not fun to talk about, right, for all of us. So even my encouragement, just as a quick aside in parentheses, is if this brings up things, even this morning, go talk to a trusted friend, one of your pastors, an elder, a small group leader. But here's what I want to suggest as we get into this passage together, is that your shame and my shame is part of the very reason why Jesus came. And he invites you to face it with him, not to heap on more, but to actually see you healed. And so just for a few minutes, here's what I'll ask you to do, is join me in seeking to face your shame. That we would together move towards our shame as opposed to actually running away. So the first thing that we're going to do by doing that, I've never used a clicker too much during a sermon, so you're going to have to bear with me okay, but I'll do my best, is the fact that one of the things that's helpful from this passage and for all of us to see is the way that shame enslaves. So let's just consider the two characters in our passage from Luke, right? You have a blind man begging, 
clearly lacking dignity, okay, begging on the side of the road, blind. Talk about shameful, right? He cries out. He's literally crying, begging Jesus to help him. Then you have Zacchaeus, a short dude who had to climb a tree in order to see Jesus. Blind and short, two experiences that could easily bring about shame. I mean, how many passers-by do you think made fun of the blind guy? Uh, there were even those in this passage that Jesus says, hey, he, he, they, he, the, the crowds tell the blind guy, you, all need, you need to shut up, man. Uh, and how many do you think probably made fun of Zacchaeus for being short? Especially considering his betrayal and his mistreatment of his fellow Jews, okay? Because he was a chief tax collector. So he was Jewish, but he was attaching himself with the Romans. Big no-no in that culture, right? He was not only disliked taking advantage of others, but he was short. That's easy to make fun of, all right? Well, in both cases, we have two different examples of different kinds of shame. And, and, and this is what we're going to walk through. The first is just illegitimate shame, okay? Allender, again, puts it this way, is that much of the shame we experience is not actually due to the exposure of our sin, but the revelation of some deficiency, or better said, perceived deficiency in our dignity. Here's what we mean. Just the reality of living in a fallen world means that you're going to perceive yourself or perceive others, and that actually produces illegitimate shame. Whether that's the reality of being blind or the reality of being small in stature. And often this comes in the form of being sinned against. That's why we're actually told, and again in verse 39 I mentioned this, those who were in front rebuked the blind man, telling him to be silent. Merely because of his need as a blind man, they were trying to shame him. And he might have felt that. He might have taken that in. So there's illegitimate shame. Now there's also legitimate shame, right? The world, by the way, will tell you all shame is bad. Don't have any shame. That's not biblical. Shame, again from Dan Allender, shame can actually be a result of the exposure of sin. And therefore, there is actually legitimate and even desirable shame. Why? Because legitimate shame exposes depravity. That is our sin. So why would this be desirable? Like, that doesn't sound a lot of, like a lot of fun, to be exposed. Well, here's the thing. Just think about something more extreme. Someone who murders another person. Well, not only are, is there guilt there, right, that, that they need to understand what they're guilty of, but an experience of shame, that is, an exposure of the wrong and actually feeling brokenheartedness and feeling the defectiveness of what took place is actually really appropriate. And so there is a sense in which there is legitimate shame when it comes to our sin. And we see that even in this passage with Zacchaeus. He took advantage of others, right? Not only charging them too much, but again, being a part of this whole scheme to get money. This legitimate shame, though, exposed with the grace and love of Jesus, was to expose the wrong that he had done and actually was there to help him feel the brokenness and defectiveness. And this is not actually a bad thing. Why? Because then it actually makes the love and the grace of Jesus all the more sweeter. And so there's a place for both to, to kind of name the realities of both illegitimate shame and also legitimate shame. But both, left undealt with, lead to what I call in this last subpoint here, the shame spiral. Because the reality is shame, whether illegitimate or legitimate, is hard to disentangle. It can get really complicated. And our responses often lead to more shame. Why? Because often it's rooted in a desire to trust ourselves. 
Shame leads to and perpetuates from a preoccupation with self. And so as you think more about yourself and how people are perceiving you, whether it's a result of your own sin or being sinned against, you heap it on more and the spiral continues. Let me give you an example of what I mean by this in case you're not tracking with me or maybe this isn't an experience that you can relate to. Well, again, Dan Allender in uh, his book called Cry of the Soul, uh, he talks about how he had a conversation, was having a conversation with a friend at a coffee shop. And they were sitting there drinking coffee, and, and he was listening very intently to his friend, enjoying his friend's story. And it kind of reaches that poignant moment, you know, like, oh, I want to find out what's happening here. And this this poignant moment of the story that his friend is sharing. And, and, and Dan recalls bringing the coffee cup to his lips, and it just misses. And the coffee just pours down the front of his shirt. His friend pauses, and, and startled, he quickly rushes back, and then he spills his own coffee. And Dan Allender recalls, I felt ashamed. Why shame? Why not just regret or sorrow? Why in those kinds of situations do we often go to a place of shame? Here's what he says. Is it possible that I was shamed rather than sorry because in the instant of transgression, I sinned against my true God? looking good and not coming across like a fool. You see, this is the tricky thing about shame. It spirals. And sometimes what can start off as a revelation of deficiency, shining a light on a place where we might feel undignified, and that is often, again, illegitimate shame, can quickly spin out of control because we are so afraid of looking bad, of looking like a fool. And so disentangling this, and then you kind of intrude also our legitimate shame where we actually have sinned, disentangling all this is messy and enslaving, and it controls us and every person we interact with. And so again, the result is we're constantly consumed with what other people think about us. Just think about this. When you're consumed with shame, what merely sometimes may be a glancing eye from somebody, they're not even paying any attention to you, but you think... The way you read that is, man, they are gazing at me because they see this on me. Maybe it is the coffee stain on your shirt. They're staring at me. They're probably not. But this way, in this way, interestingly, shame is actually related to idolatry. And here's how. Think about Adam and Eve. They placed themselves at the center of what they thought they needed, right? They thought God was withholding good things. That fruit, right? And so this led to their tragic exposure and awareness of their nakedness, the first experience of shame. Listen again to Dan Allender. In idolatrous worship, we are, self, we are exalting self-sufficiency and self-determining power. Shame, listen to this part, shame arises when worship is invested in the self rather than in God. So no matter where or how the shame in your life originated, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate, letting go of our self-sufficiency is vital to breaking the cycle. And so in your shame, the first question I want to ask you as it relates to this, this, this tangledness, this, this, uh, this enslavement that we, that we encounter is where are you turning when you say, I'm fat, I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'm athletic, I'm poor at my job, I'm, I'm a bad parent, 
Where do you go? To whom do you turn? Now, I think one of the reasons that we often don't go to God is because we think he'll actually heap on more shame. And perhaps there are even some of you in this room who have actually been hurt by people within the church, leaders or otherwise, who were supposed to be there to protect and to help, who actually heaped on more shame. And so as a result of that, your perception of Christianity or the church or God is that if I go to God with my shame, he's going to heap it on more. And this is actually where Brene Brown, again, secular author, where her words ring true. If we share our shame story with the wrong person, they can easily become one more piece of flying debris in an already dangerous storm. In other words, you say it to the wrong person, it becomes that much more worse and the spiral continues. But here's what this passage shows us. Jesus wants to hear your shame story and he's not going to pile it on. In fact, he already knows it, okay? God knows everything about you, right? He knows your deepest thoughts and everything you're feeling and thinking. So he knows it intimately, and that's why he came. Jesus came into this world to enter the dark shame pit that each of us has. And he's not just like reluctantly being like, oh man, that shame pit. He climbs in with you to sit in it. That's why he came. And in that way, when he comes in to enter that pit, that is actually why the gospel frees. So this is the second thing I want to talk about. Because look at the way Jesus pursues Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus goes up in this tree, right? We all know the song. I won't sing it for you. Zacchaeus is up in the tree, and he's like, hey, Zacchaeus, you're going to show me hospitality today. Isn't that so weird? Like, you think like, oh, Zacchaeus is going to be the one to like show him hospitality. Jesus is like, no, you're going to do it for me, okay? Um, so Zacchaeus is not the initiator. Jesus is. And man, the crowds are so mad. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Well, of course he did, because that's what Jesus does. He pursues people. Verse 10 of chapter 19, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. A lover's pursuit that is how the gospel frees, is that Jesus pursues. And when we are hit by the gospel grace bus, we can't help but let go of our self-sufficiency in dealing with our shame. And we see this with Zacchaeus. The kindness of Jesus, the loving pursuit of Jesus, melts away his self-sufficiency. And we see his response, what happens. The grip he had on his shame, whatever he was doing to cover up, whether that was taking advantage of other people, whether it was maybe thinking of himself more highly than he ought because he, he was a chief tax collector, what happens? All of it melts away. All of it melts away. And this is what Jesus wants to do, is he wants to invite you into seeing your shame as actually a pathway of mercy. We can, sh we can face shame, Allender says, as an invitation to look into the eyes of the one who does not condemn but instead he offers grace, forgiveness, and freedom. And the way that this freedom comes, the way that this grace comes, is that Jesus does this by shaming shame itself. Here's what I mean by that. Think about Jesus. Born into poverty, that's shame. Born into the lowly of the lowly, that's shameful. Stoops down into our world taking on our frail bodies, shameful. 
But more than that, Jesus takes on the shame of sin itself. Think about what death on a cross was in that time period. That was the ultimate shame. Reserved for murderers or those who are guilty of treason. And yet we're told, if you would, you can just, you can just listen to this. And in Colossians 2, that it is this very death of shame that actually led to the shaming of shame. Listen to these words at the end of, middle part of Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. And here it is. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, this is the scandal of the cross, is that as Jesus experienced shame, he shamed shame in order that you and I might actually be conquerors. He triumphed. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he won. The grip of shame, whether it's legitimate or not, does not have a hold on you anymore in Jesus. And so what you and I are offered to in this, with this gospel is actually then an invitation to freedom. And this then is where the gospel, excuse me, where the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 is so beautiful. Listen to these words that may be familiar to you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Hear the freedom in that? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God now interceding for us. Do you hear these words? God gave of his son. How will he not also graciously give us all things? That's freedom, joy, life found in Christ who pursued and who shamed shame. You know, Renee Brown talks a lot in her secular world of psychology and counseling about how vulnerability is so integral to combating shame that we need to be honest about it. But that takes a lot of risk, doesn't it? Like, that's really risky. I talked about this a minute ago, to find the right person. And it does. But here's what I want to suggest. Where the world does not offer a full confidence in that place of vulnerability, the gospel does. Here's what I mean. That you and I, because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for us by shaming shame, we have the safety of being vulnerable with the one who became vulnerable for us. Who shamed shame, who meets us in our place of vulnerability with extraordinary kindness and gentleness and patience and love. Something that the world does not offer. You see, that's the difference between so many good things about somebody like Brene Brown who talks about this need for vulnerability and for, for being honest about where we are in our lives, is that ultimately, it's a huge risk. And while yes, in some sense, there is risk by coming to Jesus as well, guess what? Ultimately, it's not. Because with Jesus, you can have the confidence that he will meet you with kindness, with gentleness, with patience, with love, and that's the place of freedom. Let me close with this story. 
Sally Lloyd-Jones. She's the author of the popular Jesus Storybook Bible. Are you familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible? By the way, another quick parenthesis. If you think it's just for children, don't fool yourselves if you think it is. It is just as much for adults. I use it with college students all the time. It's beautiful, okay? Um, She tells this story about visiting the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Here's what she says. A few years ago, I overheard someone commenting on a piece of modern non-representational art. She said, I think it was a Rothko, a 20th century American abstract painter. Someone says, she recalls, my child could do that. My child could do that. But really, isn't that the point? Interestingly, artists like Rothko were specifically drawn to children's art. Picasso once said, it took me four years to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child. You see, the power of a child's art is defined by what they can't do, by their lack. They know they can't do it. And as a result, their art is not about showing off skill or expertise. It's coming from somewhere else. It's, it's all heart. A child is physically not able to master, you know, pencils, paints. They struggle to depict things, and every line has heart. The power of the art of a child comes not from their ability or their strength, It comes from their weakness. It comes from their not being able. It comes from their vulnerability. This childlike vulnerability is what Jesus and what the Bible invites you to. It's so much of what I desire for my college students in the RUF community at IU to be characterized by. It's what I hope is true of new life here at Muncie. And this is the paradox of the gospel, right? Entering into shame, acknowledging our weakness, actually becomes strength and the path to freedom. It's so upside down to the world. But my encouragement to you is to draw near, to enter that shame. Let me close with this last quote from Dan Allender. For most people, shame is an enemy. For God's people, it becomes a friend that exposes our idolatry, draws us to the wonder of the cross, and serves as a weapon to mock evil. A friendship with shame enables us to surprise the world with love. May that be true of you all, and may that be true of RUF at Indiana. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you are a God who doesn't just heap on the shame of our lives. And when we come and acknowledge our weakness, when we seek to be vulnerable in your eyes, you don't rub it in, but you actually enter into our very dark shame pit, whether from illegitimate or legitimate shame, and you meet us and you seek to show us kindness. You pursue us as the lover that you are. Jesus, you are indeed the lover of our souls, and so remind us of that this morning as we leave here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.